seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I am thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 8 this morning. You know, the moment that the vision that you have for your life begins to consider the gospel as in some way insufficient to either redeem you or to put you on the path of restoration to God's design for your life is the moment that you are entertaining false doctrine. Last week, we looked at Paul's message to the Colossian church in which he told them that the mystery revealed in Christ and the warning that it entails is one that protects them from being deluded by what he called persuasive rhetoric of false teachers. The apostle wanted them to be encouraged by the life of Christ so that they would live their lives abounding in thanksgiving to Jesus through a disciplined and stable faith in Jesus. The same idea is furthered starting in verse 8 this morning. And these verses really serve as a type of crescendo to the subject of the matter that he's been dealing with where these false teachers bringing in these lies about Christ has been. That Paul not only seeks to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he wants to help these people in Colossae understand that they have a personal responsibility to defend against false teachers themselves. And then he uses vivid imagery to explain how the supremacy of Jesus over absolutely all things guarantees the sufficiency of his work on the cross. There's only one source from which and from whom salvation comes and it is the vicarious work of Jesus Christ on his cross. What Jesus accomplished on the cross and what is applied through faith is the exclusive source of salvation, and there isn't another one. It's through this text that the apostle seeks to expose the danger that sin has posed as it gives Satan a foothold so that we would join him in his eternal torment under the wrath of God. But the lies of Satan and the sin that condemns are no match for the triumph of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross and through the resurrection. Because it's through his gospel that the supreme Christ does all that is necessary to redeem us by offering a fully sufficient sacrifice that brings total salvation to all who believe. Because not only does Christ alone save, but it is Christ alone who triumphs over every single enemy. I want to start by reading verse 8 and then unpacking it for you. The apostle writes and he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so we see right there that he kind of furthers the concept of false teaching that he was defending against last week, but he's setting it up so that he can talk about the superiority of the gospel. But in this text, he begins by telling them one vital truth, and that's number one, protecting yourself from lies requires vigilance. Protecting yourself from lies requires vigilance. The church is and always has been under constant threat from false doctrine. That is nothing new. But when you first encounter it as a follower of Jesus, it may seem like something brand new. The fact is that it has been a problem for the entire history of the church, and much of the New Testament is in response to different heresies that must be exposed. 
The problem that we have is that many in our culture, and specifically in our contemporary time in church history, is that many find exposing false teachers distasteful in our era. But that doesn't make it unnecessary. Uh, In our age, many Christians find civility to be the ultimate fruit of the Spirit. and They want to be winsome in all things, never offending anyone. But that's not the posture that the New Testament takes takes, and it's certainly not the posture he takes in this book. Paul takes an aggressive tone with false teachers of all stripes. And speaking against one type of false teacher in Galatia, the apostle Paul states in Galatians 5.12 that he wishes they would emasculate themselves, which refers to removing their manhood. One of the heresies that he's dealing with in Colossians is the same heresy he was dealing with in Galatia, and that was that Judaizers that we don't really deal with in our era were coming into the church telling them, oh, you believe Christ? That's great. Now you Gentile need to be circumcised like us Jews, and then your conversion will be made complete. And the Apostle Paul writing to Galatia about his serious... uh, Um, fight against them. And he actually says, no, you tell those Judaizers to not just stop with circumcision, tell them to get a knife and remove the entire thing. And so Paul was not trying to be civil with false teachers. In Philippians chapter three, verse two, Paul actually calls the false teachers dogs. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. I don't know if you know this, but people don't typically like it when you call them a dog. The problem that we face in our contemporary church and the problem that many believers struggle with in society at large is that we are quicker to complain about someone's tone when they are pointing out heresy than you have a problem with actual heresy itself. And that issue, what you're dealing with is that you're not winsome, you're not being strategic, you're not giving Jesus the public relations he's always dreamed of. No, you're a coward. And the problem with the contemporary church is that we are overrun with cowardice because we are more worried about being liked than we are being truthful. The Apostle Paul in all of the New Testament actually takes the opposite posture. The very first three words in verse 8, he begins with, see to it. And this is actually one term in the original language, and it literally means to be on the lookout with vigilance. He's telling the Colossian church, It's not just Paul that has a responsibility where false teaching is concerned. It's not just the pastors. It's every Christian. Every Christian has a call by God to protect the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, be vigilant on your looking out for heresy. This is about being defensive while also being proactive in exposing false teaching exactly where it stands. Obedience to what Paul is talking about here requires people actually take a stand against false teaching. That does require an uncommon vigilance. It does require an uncommon endurance. And this is no easy task. This is a difficult calling that God has given you because it's hard to stand against any growing tide in culture. It's hard to stand against any growing tide inside of the church, even if you know that it is a lie and it goes further than just being something we label a lie. A destructive heresy is the way the Apostle Paul would put it. He begins by talking about what is the overarching element that false teaching was coming from at that time. He uses the term philosophy. That term literally means the love of wisdom. 
In our context, we look at philosophy as just an academic discipline. But the way the Apostle Paul is talking about it, it transcends academic discipline and goes to the very root of the way that people saw the world around them as a source from which truth can come does come, but it is also a source from which lies can be derived and added to the gospel. It is much easier to be taken captive than you think. That's why he says, see to it in verse 8, that no one takes you captive. It's actually a pirate metaphor in that age, and it's also a metaphor that's used to describe the, the spoils of war, something that is taken by force. And see, Apostle Paul is very much saying the false teachers are going to be aggressively seeking to take hold of your worldview. They're going to aggressively seek to take you as their hostage, and you must meet their aggression against you with similar aggression against them. Because just like a pirate or an invading army would take the spoils of war, what the Apostle Paul is saying is you are the spoils of war that false teachers want to take. False doctrine can very much imprison you, and it does imprison many people. And you then become a prisoner of the spiritual war happening all around us all of the time. That oftentimes, because of our lack of vigilance, we just neglect it. We act as though everything is going to be okay. I would never believe a lie. Who wants to understand, think that they would believe a lie? And yet... Over and over, people will come into this church looking for a church home, and they will begin to talk to me about what they believe about the gospel, and it will be heresy after heresy after heresy after heresy. And rarely does a person thank me when I expose the lies that they believe. When I say, actually, uh, we don't teach that here at all. And sometimes I'll use coarse language and say, we preach the real gospel here, not that load. Sometimes people are thankful they're converted to real faith in Christ, and sometimes they leave. And I've won in both instances. When a wolf is heading into the chicken house, you don't ask the wolf about its feelings. You don't ask the wolf if it feels good about killing chickens. You don't ask the wolf if they would just leave and be civil about the situation. No, you take a 12-gauge out there, you shoot the wolf. When it comes to heresy... We want them to leave. We do not entertain false doctrine. We do not pretend that it's okay and that their love language is just different than ours. No, we expose lies, we expose heretics, and we shoot wolves around here. And so if you are ever thinking about trying to infiltrate a community group in this church with any type of false teaching, because that's how it goes, rarely does a good wolf come to me first. They know what I'm going to do. No, they'll try to infiltrate your discipleship group. They'll try to get you to read false doctrine like something from Jesus Calling, which is still one of the best sellers. I don't know how. That, that book is full of nothing but lies about Scripture, telling you that the Bible isn't sufficient for you. Anything that tells you the Scripture isn't sufficient is 100% from Satan himself. We have people like using new age mantras from books like The Secret to tell you that you can somehow materialize your thoughts if you're just positive enough. None of this is the gospel. All of this is damnable heresy. 
And they won't come after me. They will seek you out in a discipleship group. They will seek you out in some type of women's Bible study. You know, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul puts more aggressive language in protecting women from false doctrine than he is men because he understands that the thought processes are different. No disrespect, but I can convince a man two plus two equals four really quick. A woman has to think about how she feels about the situation. I say that in love. It's good because when my kids are hurt, two plus two equals four is not comforting at all. (laughs) But the fact is that in Acts chapter 20, the apostle looks at the church at Ephesus and he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock, speaking to pastors. He says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. He's saying it's going to get a foothold in the lives of the people of the church to draw away the disciples after them. Every single one of you can be taken captive by false teaching. I am not immune The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and he forms these fierce wolves, and Jesus says they'll put on sheep's clothing. They will look innocent. They will tell you, you are the Christian they've always been looking for because you're a little brighter than the other one, and then they will slowly insert false doctrine, and they will woo some disciples to believing their lies. He says, be on the lookout for fierce wolves. Not so that we can help them. No, so that we can get them out of here. False teachers are predators. They're not to be reasoned with. It's not enough for them that they concoct and believe lies. They are not satisfied until they take you captive. And if you refuse to be taken captive, then they will say you are somehow the bad guy. And that's when the issue of tone comes into play. That is why Paul warns them to be careful. We must be vigilant to keep the gospel message pure from all of the additives, from all of the subtractions that some would make to delude you away from it or to cultivate a false religion out of it. And it is difficult in our time Because they invade the church with a different gospel and then label you as unkind for exposing it. The modern evangelists of our age are not the Judaizers. Note that I do not spend a lot of time warning all of you Gentiles that better be careful. They're going to try to get you to be circumcised so that you're really saved. It's been exposed. No one's being drawn away with that. And if you are... Don't. That knife's not going to help. But in our age, the modern day Judaizers, the modern day Greek philosophers are the sexual cultists of homosexuality and transgenderism. Satan has turned them into wolves that want the flesh of your children so that they can seek to control the future. 
This is about sexual sin being turned into an ideology that seeks to proselytize as many as possible to its cause. And it is now a dangerous philosophy. It is less about sexual attraction and more about forming a sexual religion in which they want to take all of us captive. And the way they are beginning, even in churches that are orthodox, even in churches that are as conservative as our own, is that they will tell you, you cannot be an effective evangelist for them while also exposing their lies. They will try to convince you that it is unkind to expose sin exactly where it stands. Well, my question to them is always, on what day of discipleship do I have to tell them to stop being homosexuals? At what day of discipleship do I tell them that it is a sin against the body to try to reassign your gender through surgery? At what point in discipleship do we tell them? And I'll tell you, I'm just an honest and blunt guy. My spiritual gift is just telling people the truth. I tell them before they even come to Christ. You want to come to Christ? No more of that. Because they need to know the truth. It is not a detraction from the gospel to tell them truth. It is the truth of the gospel to tell them the truth. Just like I needed to be redeemed from my sin, all sexual deviants need to be redeemed from their sin. But they will come in and they will say, you better keep that a secret or the world won't accept Christ. And I say, well, they're not accepting Christ already. I'm going to help them. Friends, we must tell them the truth of the situation. I need you to understand that it is not enough for you to say, while I'm good, I know the truth. They're not just after you. They are after the weak ones of the flock. They are after the innocent ones of the flock. They are after our children. You must be vigilant to say, who is teaching my child and what are they teaching my child? And if you say, I don't have time, I say, well, you better make it. They're not after, again, they're not after me. They're after my children. And I'll die on the line before they get them. Friends, we must understand that irrevocable damage is being done to the youth and our society by these cultists. No amount of discipleship that I can offer after someone comes to faith in Christ can undo gender reassignment surgery. That is a for life physical change. And we will face the ramifications of our refusal to stand against the growing tide of degeneracy in our culture. When they begin to come to faith in Christ, they say, I wish someone had warned me. Look at what I've done to myself. I can only give them the hope of eternity. They can never undo the physical damage, friends. We're getting to a place in society where we cannot even trust medical professionals because they see dollar signs in these surgeries and in these medicines. Friends, if no one else is going to do it, the church of Jesus Christ must be vigilant about our faith. This is the cult in our society right now. Many, I will warn you, many have and will compromise. Your friends, your family, your co-workers will compromise. They will be taken captive. Let that not be the obituary on the sign of village church. Rather, let us make disciples who make disciples that withstand the enemy on the day of visitation when it comes to our path. May we have backbones for the gospel 
And that is where Paul transitions the letter to the crescendo of why he takes such a bold stand. Because number two this morning, Christ alone can save anyone from sin. Christ alone can save anyone from sin. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, for in Christ, the wholeness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He says a lot in a short amount of time in those three verses. The first thing that he points out is the deity of Jesus Christ. He makes a very good point that so many of us just kind of ignore, and the ramifications are huge. He says Christ is God, and Christ must be God. Why is that such a big deal? And between verses 9 and 12, he really gives us two reasons. First reason is because Jesus is God, and that's a big deal. No, the verse 9 is a big claim. He literally says, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's a definition about what theologically speaking is called the hypostatic union. This is about the incarnation of God, the Son. Jesus isn't part man and part God. Jesus is not a demigod. Jesus is not simply anointed by God. Nor is Jesus simply a descendant of a race of gods. Jesus is not a wise sage. Jesus cannot be reduced to a good rabbi. Jesus is not just an elevated consciousness of man. This statement describes the incarnate deity of Jesus. Jesus is both fully God and fully human. The term bodily that is used is also important. Jesus and Jesus alone could represent us as humans by being fully human. He was our substitute and in order to be our substitute, he had to be a real human being. But also understand that he also, at the same time as being our substitute, had to be the judge over humanity and for sin. And a human being couldn't do that. So what does he need to do that? He had to be fully God. Friends, Jesus and Jesus alone is God in human form. And it is vital for us to understand because that is also exactly what the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons that come to talk to you will try to rip away from Jesus Christ. Oh, he's not really the eternal God. He's a child of God through a great miracle, but he's not eternal. As soon as I begin to talk to the cultists, I immediately begin to talk about the eternality of Jesus Christ, that he is co-equal with the Father. He is co-equal with the Spirit. Cultists will always downplay the deity of Christ to make him less than the eternal God. But he is, in that sense, if he's less than the eternal God, he is made impotent to save us completely from our sin. 
Because it is God and God alone that can save us from sin. Because it is God and God alone against whom all sin is committed. The scriptures echo this truth about Jesus resoundingly. No one else shares God's throne and rules over all creation, but Jesus and Jesus alone. Therefore, no one else has the authority to judge sin and deal with it in ultimate finality the way that Jesus does. Only God the Son can do that for us. 1 Corinthians 1.18 puts it plainly that the notion of God becoming man is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of salvation for all who believe. Why? Because Jesus is God. So many who are dead in their sin, and they have done this, they will always do this. They will look to a follower of Jesus Christ and be like, you really believe God became a human being? That's impossible. To which the only response is, yeah, that's why it's called a miracle. Oh, that's foolishness. That's how you know that person is blinded in their sin. I always love to expose their foolishness by talking to them about how terrible it must be to walk through life completely hopeless in your sin. Anytime I talk to an atheist about the existence of God, I rarely begin with any type of academic treatise. I just meet them where they are, and they'll tell me all about the terrible things that sin has caused, the terrible things that evil has produced in society, how awful pain is in this world. And I'll just meet them right there, and I'll say, oh, man, I understand. I understand how you feel. Man, pain, terrible, evil, awful, sin, the worst thing ever. But help me understand how not having a God who controls it all makes it any better. Because if there is no God, then we are just on a ball circling in space. And it's all phony. It's all hopeless. Every single one of us is going to just be damned forever. But if there is a God, then we have a definition of hope. And they will begin with a presupposition. Well, the miraculous is impossible. And I will say, right, it has to look impossible or it wouldn't be the miraculous. Atheists have zero convincing arguments. All that they have is blindness and a complete lack of power over sin. Follower of Jesus, never cower against those that would call you foolish. Because Paul told us, of course they think it's foolish. They're damned. But you have something that they need. You have the power of salvation in your life. There is simply no hope and only condemnation offered in eternal death for those apart from Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has accomplished what no human being ever can, but every human being is trying to attain. And that is salvation. The text gives a practical picture of what Jesus has done for us by using the word picture that's uncomfortable, the word picture of circumcision. Why is he using this word picture? Well, because one of the heresies from the false teachers, as I said, was about the issue of circumcision. They wanted the Gentiles to be circumcised in order for them to really be saved. The problem with that, though, is that apart from the grace of God, circumcision was a judgment of wrath against them. In Romans chapter 2, Starting in verse 25, the Apostle Paul is clear. He says, For circumcision is indeed of value 
if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter of the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying what the Old Testament echoed all the time. Circumcision was never the path of salvation. Neither was being a Jew the path of salvation. In Deuteronomy, he literally says, Moses writes, he says, your circumcision must become the circumcision of the heart. Circumcision as baptism is an outward sign of a work that God is doing in the heart through faith. So it is not the physical activity on the member that brings about salvation, but rather it was to speak of a faith that they had on the internal. And what the Apostle Paul is saying to the New Testament Jews is he's saying, if you think your circumcision is going to bring you salvation, have you kept the entire law? Everything in it to which an honest man has to say no. But if you're cool in your sin, you can lie and say yes. But no, if you're honest, no, you're not perfect. No, no one has obeyed the law in its entirety. And, Moses, and excuse me, Paul writes and he says, the moment you sin, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Your circumcision is made pointless. So what needs to be done? The circumcision of the heart. And who does that? Look back in Colossians 2. In verse 10, he says, And you who have been filled with him, filled with who? Christ. Who is he? And he always brings us back to the supremacy, the authority. He says, Who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with what? Because many of those Gentiles will be like, I'm pretty sure I would have PTSD if I remembered that day. I don't remember being circumcised. No, he says... A circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by what Paul is talking about in Romans 2, the circumcision of the heart. What Paul is saying is there is nothing that you can do with your own hands that will ever help you attain salvation. The only one that can save you is Jesus Christ. You must trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. That is what it means to put off the body of flesh. Human hands can't do that. Only God himself can offer that type of judgment and redemption in one fell swoop. Jesus sacrificed his body so that we could be redeemed from the body of sin that we possess and he could offer the very righteousness of God in exchange for our sin. That is what circumcision of the heart provides. Only Jesus can save. That is why Paul states in Philippians 3.3 that those who are in Christ are the real circumcision. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And note this, 
put no confidence in the flesh. Why don't we put confidence in the flesh? Because it is the flesh that kills. There's nothing I can do with my hands to save me. And here's the bad news. You're in the same boat I am. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. You can go through every religious ritual of every religion that exists, every religion that has ever existed, and you will be just as lost as you were when you started. The only thing that can save is the sufficient work from the supreme Christ, Jesus our Lord on the cross. Those who believe in what he has done and put their faith in him have put off the body of flesh and have been circumcised to the heart. It is Christ and Christ alone who saves. And that is the truth for every human being that has ever lived will ever live in any country that they live. It is only Christ and Christ alone who saves. Therefore, Christian, we put no confidence in the flesh. We put our confidence in what Jesus has already accomplished for us. And that leads to what is the climax, I believe, the hinge upon which the book of Colossians is on. One of my favorite sections of Scripture, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. I want to read it for you. He says, and you. I love the way Paul, it's almost like a literary device that Paul uses throughout the book. Every time he says you, buckle up because he's about to give you bad news. <laughs> I don't play a single positive part in the entire book of Colossians. Anytime he gets to me, Paul says, I got bad news. And you, here's the bad part. He says, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set it aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Note, though, that he has said something very important at the end of verse 12 that really sets us up for this. Christ did not just die on the cross. What did he do? He says at the end of verse 12, who raised him, from the dead. The resurrection is what seals the reality of the gospel because it is only Jesus who has ever risen from the dead under his own power as God and did not then subsequently die again. I've heard some critics say, oh, the Bible has a bunch of resurrections in it. There's resurrections in the Old Testament. Elisha raises a child from the dead. Somebody falls in the bones of Elisha, rises from the dead. Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead and a child from the dead. There's things that happen in the book of Acts as well. But here's the difference. Those people that saw the miracle of resurrection, unfortunately, they had to die again. And that's got to be the bad part. Because I've never died. But I hear it's not something you want, all right? I hear it's, a, it's a something that you wouldn't like if you went through it, all right? And imagine the day it set in on Lazarus. I got to do that again, huh? 
Like, you know, at some point after the whole thing where he's like, oh my goodness, Jesus, I was dead for a couple of days and I'm not dead anymore. And I'm going to go hang out with my sisters. I'm going to live a life. There came a time where he started to slow down, got a little sick and he was like, not again. Oh boy. That was pretty bad the first time. Now I, now I know what it feels like. That makes it even worse. But here's the deal. 1 Corinthians 15 gives us this reality that that which is perishable must put on that which is imperishable. And Jesus has already done that. Jesus has not and will not ever die again. His resurrection is permanent. His resurrection is eternal. His resurrection is what puts all of his enemies to open shame because the scripture is clear. The greatest enemy that we face is death. We face death because of sin and Jesus triumphed over both of them on the cross. And the analogy that the apostle Paul uses for why the gospel of Jesus Christ is effective is my favorite analogy in all of scripture because Paul explains why it's a legal gospel. Sometimes people around me, the staff will ask me, I'll have an idea and they'll be like, is that legal? I'll be like, probably. I haven't been told it's illegal. It's kind of like yesterday, people were asking, is it legal for us to park cars everywhere that we are? And I may have told a white lie that the mayor gave us permission, but that wasn't a real lie because I believed it because Chesterfield doesn't have a mayor and I just anointed myself as the mayor for the day. And my full title was Mayor McCheese, all right? And, and I gave us permission to park cars wherever we needed to park cars, all right? Parking team all-stars, by the way, best in the business, all right? They were. Thank you. I take all of your praise. But Jesus on the cross accomplished an eternal plan in real time. And he notes that the problem that every single one of us face that false teachers can never give you hope over is the fact that you don't need help because dead people can't help themselves. Dead people are just dead. There's nothing you can do for yourself. There's nothing anyone else can do for you. And he uses a vital term. The full phrase is, you are dead in transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh. And the second phrase is as important as the first phrase because the second phrase means it's worse than the first phrase. We are both dead and unclean in the eyes of God. That means not only am I spiritually dead, but God, because of my spiritual death, has completely rejected me because of his holiness. He wants nothing to do with sin. And I want foolishness to believe that my death can be remedied by my own human hands. But that is your situation without Jesus Christ. He doubles down then. He says Jesus bears supremacy over all creation. He's already explained that. More than that, he's already explained. Jesus is supreme. He has supremacy over his people, the church. Jesus has supremacy over creation still. He notes earlier in the book that all of creation is maintained and empowered by Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone can do what needs to be done to bring about salvation. Because apart from him, you are dead in your sin, and then you are rejected by God. 
And so what do you do? And the answer is nothing. There's nothing you can do. But there is something Jesus can do. And see, you are hopeless in your sin unless Jesus does something about it. The phrase, he made you alive, is a statement of Jesus' action, not yours. You didn't do that. You can't do that. How could, though, and this question is begged, how could God take me from dead and rejected by him to a point where through Jesus I've been forgiven of all of my transgressions. That's the term that is used. We tend to reduce transgressions to what has become an arbitrary term. It's the term sin. But I like the term transgression first because we don't use it. So we have to think about what does that term mean? It means and it confers the idea that someone has placed a limit that has been crossed. God made a limit. He set a boundary. You crossed it and it has killed you in the spiritual sphere. That is the result of your transgressions. Your sin is not isolated. It is not solitary to you. It was against God's declaration of what is acceptable and it has literally killed you and you deserve eternal wrath. So who needs to do something? Only God can save you now. Only God can save you. And then Paul gives a legal illustration. I love it. He says, your sin's not a secret. None of them are. There is a record of, he calls it debt. And God has it. He doesn't just know that you were born in your sin. You were born radically corrupt. He knows every sin that you have committed against him since you were born. He has a record of it all. In his omniscience, he remembers my sin. I have not kept a secret against him in any part of my life. More than that, he says there are legal demands because of my sin. There is something God must do to me in light of my sin. There must be justice or injustice will reign. God cannot just say, that's all good, buddy. I say that to my kids sometimes because I'm a pushover. And I haven't found justice for their sin. I just pretend it didn't happen. God does not just sweep my sin under the rug. God does not just pretend it didn't happen because God is just. And there is a legal demand. There is a legal decree, the text says. And that means that you have the entirety of God's law and its consequences standing against you in the form of a debt that you have no ability to pay off and you have no ability to make right. And then in this great climax, he says, this he set aside. How? Because he went public with your sin in the most grotesque and the most embarrassing way possible. He nailed it to the cross. He didn't pretend it didn't happen. 
He didn't sweep it under the rug. He took it off of you and put it onto the account of God the Son, Jesus Christ, while He suffered and He bled and He died on the cross to pay the penalty to meet the legal demand of your sin so that God could look at it and say, justice has been done. And every moment that Christ suffered on the cross was a moment that the legal record of my transgressions were placed upon him until the moment that he breathed his last. And what did he say? It is finished. Debt is paid. What is finished? My record of debt against God. When the text says you have been forgiven, understand it is not a cheap forgiveness. Understand it is a forgiveness that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for. And it is also not a forgiveness by which on a bad day, God will bring your sin back up against you the way that a wife who forgave you a year ago God isn't like that. When God says the record of debt is gone, it's gone. So once you've come to faith in Christ, who is it that will seek to make you guilty? Verse 15. Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So here's the question. The false teachers would have you believe more work is necessary for salvation. But when Paul in verse 15 makes a statement about the enemy Satan and his legions, he is talking about the false teachers who would look to you to say, your sin still reigns over you. Here's the secret. And what he's saying when he says he disarmed them, he's using a term that literally means he has made them harmless. And so when the enemy comes to you and says, oh, you claim Christ, I know who you really are. I know what you've really done. I know what goes on in your mind. I know your past. What the gospel says is, he is harmless. More than that, he's been put to open shame because it is not Christ who is impotent. It is Satan who is impotent to bring any charge against the elect of God. How do I know that? In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, quickly, Paul is telling the church that they must go and take the gospel to all people so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan in condemnation to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. Romans 8, starting in verse 37, the term conquerors is used to describe our victory in Jesus. And he says, can anything separate us from the love of God in Christ? No. 
In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, when the accuser comes and brings to question the sufficiency of Jesus's work of forgiveness, even if he does it in human form, we respond, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His grace is sufficient because his power is ultimate. He is the sovereign and supreme ruler over all of creation. He is the Savior who loves enough to pay for my debt with his own body and blood on the cross. So when the false teachers come to collect a wage for some incurred debt of soul or society from me, there is only one response. My debt has been wiped clear through Christ and Christ alone. Jesus has triumphed over every ruler and every enemy that can ever stand against me. A few application points this morning. Be vigilant against false teachers. Be vigilant against false teachers. Secondly, believe that Jesus is the eternal God because he is. Don't believe the lies. Thirdly, trust that what Jesus has accomplished is enough because it is. Live free from the burden of the debt of sin. Don't carry guilt if Jesus has forgiven you. And then finally, flaunt the power of God over all of his enemies. And when somebody complains about your tone, just tell them they're a spineless coward. Because Jesus is the king over all of creation, and I refuse to act like he's anything less. 